If you have a Bible or New Testament, I'm going to encourage you to go to the book of James. And uh, we've challenged you to read the book a couple of times each week. And so if you've been in the series, this is week number four of the series. So you've had a, a few weeks to get a running start at it. And uh, just to breeze through it, don't study it necessarily word for word in every word, but just read through it. How many of you have at least read it at least once sometime in the last little bit? Yeah, good, you're on your way. So you can read it in about 20 minutes. Uh, it's not hard to do it. And then it, you can also get it on a, p- a podcast or you can also listen to it online. It, there's just ways to, to catch the book of James. We just really want to not only uh, grow through the study of the book of James this summer, but then just encourage each other with some practical Christian living. The series is called Faith That Works, and we want to build our own faith this summer. So uh, I would encourage you too, uh, some of you are doing this, is just pick a verse from each chapter and me- memorize a verse from each chapter in the book of James. And uh, it'd be a really good thing to do. Today we're in James chapter two, and James is the half-brother of Jesus. So he grew up with Jesus as, as his older brother, and he never really believed in Jesus. He kind of put up with Jesus, kind of stood at a distance and didn't really get Jesus until Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and then miraculously rose again, and then, then all of a sudden it started making sense to James. James became a Christ follower in personal faith. By the time he writes this book, he is not only a Christ follower, but he's a leader in the church. He's setting the example, and so he writes, James, a servant of Jesus Christ, not, not the half-brother of Jesus. He finds his identity as a servant of Jesus Christ, and he writes to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. It's kind of a pictorial way of saying an obvious reference to the 12 tribes of Israel, but these are believers in Jesus Christ who are scattered around the world. So this is a letter written to Christians around the world who may be religious Christians. These are Christians who grew up going to synagogue, grew up going to church. How many of you grew up going to church? You were six months old, you already had a six-month pin. How many of you never went to church till you were an adult? Just a handful. How many of you only went to church only when grandma and grandpa came to town? Any Christmas, Easter people? Yeah, yeah, people like that. Yeah, why would I ask, if, uh, why would I ask Christmas or Easter people? They obviously are not here. It's not Christmas or Easter, right? That was kind of a trick question now that I think about it. This is written as an epistle to people who understand what it means to be a Christ follower. So it does not go through the gospel. It assumes you already know the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again. It already has a lot of those assumptions because it's written to Christians about Christianity itself. So this is for convinced Christ followers in faith. This book will show us how to live the faith, not what the faith is in essence, but rather how to live it out. So it's a description of the faith, whereas um, Romans, for instance, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God and his salvation. Uh, Romans chapter one, for all of sin, uh, chapter three, and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter six, verse 23. It, those are the definition of what faith is, whereas James is gonna be the description, what it looks like. Okay, see the difference? So when, when you read the book of Ephesians and it says, for by grace you're saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, that is the definition of faith. Faith is a gift from God. I believe in Jesus Christ, it's not of works, so no one can boast. Then when James writes, 
faith without works is dead. What's he doing? He's not defining it. He's describing what real faith looks like because you want to know you, that this faith that you have is for real. If you were sick and you thought you might be dying, we'd load you up, take you to the hospital, and they would immediately strap you with some things and maybe tape some things to your body, and they're going to look for, for what kind of signs? What are they called? Vital signs, signs of life. They want to make sure that you're living. Have you ever been in a room with a person and you're not even sure they're breathing? You know, just kind of there, just there. And after a while you wonder, is he really there? All there? You're, don't raise your hand. Don't point at this point. But you've been in a room, you wonder, is his heart really beating? Is he actually breathing? You're looking for vital signs of life. When James writes, he's writing saying, these are the vital signs. He's describing what this faith is really all about. That's why when the reformer, Martin Luther, a few hundred years ago, who, by the way, was a Catholic priest, who was a married Catholic priest living in Germany, learned the scriptures only because he got to go to religious school because he was a priest, but he read it for himself, and he read, the just shall live by faith, Romans 1. He said, oh, my goodness, the just shall live by faith. I, we've been telling him faith plus all these other things, and that didn't go so well. So he began what we would now later call the Reformation. But so he was such a strong person about this, for by grace we're saved through faith, that when he read James, faith without works is dead, he found it to be what he described as a strawy epistle. It was hard for him to chew on it, to take it, receive it. And the reason was because he's, he read that book going, is this the description or is this the definition of, of faith? And obviously it is the description. And while Romans and Ephesians and other books actually give us the definition of faith. And so James, as we look at chapter two, will tell us what this faith does. It, it cannot help but change the life. And if it doesn't change the life, then that means there's no life. Okay, you get this? So when you don't have all those signs of life, you have good reason to ask yourself, is there actual life? When people don't grieve over sin, have no conscience over wickedness, don't feel grieved in their own heart, there's no transformation of their own soul, there's no regeneration of their own heart, you wonder, not are they off the track, you wonder if they're alive at all. And that's what James is saying. And nowhere is that more true than James chapter two when he addresses this issue of favoritism. Favoritism. Now, we have all played favorites as kids, picking teams, right? Uh, you know, being part of a musical group or an athletic group, you've got a quiz team and it's an academic thing. You all know what it's like to play favorites. You have played favorites with your friends, right? You have had people play favorites with you, which isn't good. And how many of you know your mom has a favorite? How many of you know that? She does, you just don't know it, okay? Because playing favorites is something that happens real naturally. And, and James addresses this real clearly, and, and he addresses it right out of the gate. What's the problem? James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. I hope you get this. This is an imperative. This is very declarative. Another version calls this snobbery. It's making calls based upon first impressions. It's not discernment. It's just snap judgment. Favoritism is our own built-in prejudices based upon just surface, kind of surface impressions. And God's word says those kinds of attitudes are wrong, they're hurtful, they're unproductive, they're unfair. 
They're downright sinful. They are not Christianly. Christians don't do this. So it's, imp it's imperative that we get the seriousness of that text down. And, and he, he's saying, if you call yourself a Christian, you cannot play favorites. It is incompatible with Christianity. Now, how do we discriminate? I'm going to give you five ways. They're all five A's. Ready? Appearance, ancestry, age, achievement, affluence. You've been tapped by all those at some point in your life, or most of them. Appearance. You know the cutest person gets picked. You know, it's just by the standards. We know that people want to dress for success, and we, we, then we say, why did I put so much stock in that? Because you were snookered by the dress instead of by the character. And so appearance can fool you at times. And it doesn't mean you should not pay attention to the way you dress. My dad used to say this, you know, God looks at the heart, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. And then my dad would say, just remember, man does look at the outward appearance. So cut your hair, comb it, tuck your shirt in, you know, look good, shine your shoes. Because man does look at the outward appearance, see. So, but that's not the end of who we are. That could still fool somebody, but you want to make sure that first impression is good, but that's not the character of the person, so hold off on the judgment. You don't have to make it anyway. A second is ancestry, your race, nationality, your ethnic roots, and you've all made judgment calls this way. We all have done this at some point or another where we make a judgment call based upon the initial look of a person only to find when they open their mouth, it's different yet. You ever had that happen? Oh my goodness. You just made the assumption, and the assumption can be totally wrong. And then there's a third area, is, is that of age. It's um, you're either too old or you're too young, you're, you're not qualified or you're overqualified for the job. And right now, here's the secret in the, in the job economy. Here it is, write this down. Everyone wants a 30-year-old with 20 years of experience. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, we all want this great experience, but we only want to pay them what a person right out of the gate would get. So it's the age issue all over again. And then there's the one of achievement, where society gushes over the winners. We have celebrity status. It happens not only in the movies and sports. It happens in Christendom, too. We have our, uh, you know, our stellar stars, and there might be musicians or theologians, and we want to talk like them or sound like them or look like them. And, and, and all of that is just another different form of idolatry. And it, it comes across as, well, you'd be more godly if you were this way, when really it's just the achievement or it's the way God formed them. So leave that alone. Let them be who they are. Uh, and if, if they have achievements, that's wonderful. But don't put your whole stock in those achievements. And the last is the one that James will actually illustrate. It's the one of affluence. And this one catches all of us. And it may be the biggest one. In fact, it may trump the other ones. Affluence. We judge people by their wealth, whether they're rich or poor. And we do it at both extremes, anybody who's different than us, because we think, quietly, everybody should be just like us. We don't say that out loud, but that's the way we think about these things. We look at people who are poorer than us, and I mean this in, a, in just a general way, and, and we say, well, they're poorer than us, what did they do wrong? You know, what's wrong with you? And people who are way, way richer than us, you know what we say quietly in our hearts? You're saying, how do you know this? I know this because I do this. What did you do that was illegal that got you that rich? Right? Please tell me I'm not the only one who sought that thought. What did you do? And tell me your secret. You know, that's it. Because he says, we think there's something wrong with them because they are so dang rich. And you know what? 
when we look at a poor person, we become a, a, a very conservative capitalist and go, you need to work. And we look at a real rich person and we become a real socialist. We say, hey, share the love, baby, right? <laughs> Give me some of that blessing of yours. Yeah, yeah. And so affluence is really a huge issue. And see, when you walk into SBC, it's one of the things I love about here. And by the way, when I preach today, this, this is not a message. It's, this is a softball, slow pitch you know, three-foot arc coming across the plate for you. This is not a hard sermon to preach, nor is it hard for you to hear because we are really, I don't mean this in a prideful way, but we're doing very, very well. Anybody can walk in here. We, we don't have, here, we just don't have issues. There's not two coffee pots out in the lobby, one with like canned, cheap, watered-down coffee for common folks, and then a really rich, imported, roasted bean for the top givers. You know, there's no such thing out there, at least if there is, I haven't found that one yet, but anyway, it, it's, it, there isn't, there isn't, you know, there isn't some kind of demarcation out there. We don't have gold circle seating, you know, where you know the peasants sit to the back and the you, people up front here are the, the top whatever in the church. We don't have reserved parking for the top givers or whatever. We have a section for visitors because they don't know they don't know what door to come in, so we have a, a visitor section for parking that and we like to put stuff on your windshield wipers while you're in here no I'm just kidding you that isn't what we do we just we don't do that because we don't want to play favorites we don't and we don't judge it's just one of the things I love about SPC I'll meet someone who's working down the hall who is just a wonderful godly man or woman and I, I find out just how great and how rich God has blessed them in their life and they're working with our kids or our teens. They're working in the lobby, and they're 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 working in the booth. They're working. We're part of the prayer ministry or part of a small group ministry. I just, but they just they they come with no titles and no expectations, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I I was laughing. We were it just it is so crazy. This morning I'll tell you a story right out of between services. I'm greeting. I do this live greet right here, and. Uh, a guy comes up, interrupts one conversation to interrupt to another, and a third one comes and interrupts the interruption. That'll tick a guy off. You know, hey, I'm the interrupter, not you. You know, so, okay, put it down. And so we're chatting. We get done. I go back to my original comment, and there was a woman who was right here who just waited patiently and smiled. And I don't have her permission to tell you this, so I'm sorry. Um, I'll have to apologize to her later. She's a full colonel. She gives commands in her world. And she just stood there and watched all the interruptions. <laughs> and okay, and I'll be right there, I'll get right to you. And she, no, oh, it's fine, no big deal, it's all right. And I, I walked back to a guy and I said, uh, you know, she's a colonel, she could put people in the brig if she wanted to. I mean, it's scary what the power she has. But she didn't wield that, it never, it never fluttered her, didn't bother her at all. That, and and uh, it was really funny because we were laughing at the judgment calls we were making about the interrupters. You know, who do they think they are? <laughs> I think I just judged them. Uh-oh. You know, you can't even, you couldn't even think the thought. Get away with it. And that's what I love about SPC is everybody just asked, acts average, normal. Just say to your neighbor, I'm normal and so are you. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor. Yeah. Ah. I heard a couple of no, you're nots, but that's not true. 
Here's the thing. So it is super easy to somehow let a person of power or of riches to somehow want to control. And you want to honor a person, but you don't want the influence to become, the affluence becomes the influence because then you are slave to that money or that agenda or any of that power that comes with it. And it's intoxicating if you succumb to it and it's addictive. And so James starts by saying, brothers and sisters, you're a follower in Jesus Christ. You cannot play favorites. Get it down. Verse two. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy and old clothes comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or you sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Stop there at the end of verse four. Where does this problem come from? Author Guy King calls it the case of the nearsighted usher. Two guys come in for worship service. They probably are new. The service has started. People are already in. They don't know where to sit. And so the first guy comes in. He's dripping in wealth. He has gold rings. Literally, if you read ancient manuscripts, it's, it's, the word is, is not just gold rings. It's gold-fingered is what it is. They actually made gold fingers. That's a lot of gold. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of bling. I'm trying to new, use new words. That's a lot of bling. I have no idea what it means, but I'm using it. Twice more this week. Historians tell us, too, that they would take jewels, cut jewels, and, and embroider them, sew them into their gowns. So they would have these inner cloths that they would wash and wear, but then this outer gown that had the jewels in it, that's what they wore when they went public. Then they'd put on the gold fingers and then go to church. And... And they would go to church, and then the second guy walks in, and he's dirt poor, shabby, destitute, hurting, perhaps because of some bad decisions, or perhaps that's just the way life has been for him. Maybe it's of his own doing. Maybe not. We don't know. And James, by the way, is not shaming someone for being rich, nor is he shaming them for being poor. This is important that you get this. That is not the issue. There are godly people in the, in the Bible who were very rich. Um, David, King David, king, my gosh, he's probably the richest guy in the land. Moses, very rich. Uh, Abraham, rich. Joseph, poor and incarcerated. <laughs> the Apostle Paul, rich, then poor, and then stayed poor. Then went to jail, then got out, then went back to jail. Oh, then he got in a shipwreck, got bit by a snake. But other than that, life went well for him. So you have rich people who are godly, but you have poor people who are godly too. So, and he's Lord over all. And he's Lord of everyone in between. So James is not addressing the issue. He's not shaming anybody for being rich or poor. What he's addressing is exactly what Guy King has said, the nearsighted usher who's made the judgment call and he takes the rich guy and he trumpets him down the road to the gold circle seating and he has a special assigned seat for him. Now, you have to get some Jewish context to this because this is uh, the um, ancient manuscripts uses actually the word synagogue here, meaning church, but it was, it was a synagogue setting and they had what they call Matthew 23 chief seats or uh, 
C-H-I-E-F, chief seats. These were prominent seats within the assembly where they would worship, but they were places, you know, that had great armrests and cushion, probably crushed velvet, a little bit of gold inlay on it. And, and the person sitting there was noticed by everybody else. These were seats that they loved to sit in for the prominence, okay? And to the other guy, he said, well, find a place wherever you can along the wall, or if nothing else, you can sit at my feet. You see, favoritism promotes a discriminatory kind of mindset, which isn't healthy, because you, you pay special attention, the text says. Not only that, but it, it cultivates a judgment value. So you may become judgmental in your value system. Have a good seat, have a not so good seat. You're making value calls, and you've just met the people. You don't know anything about them. The only thing you know about them is that they both want to worship and they're both probably late for church, which leads me to think they're United Methodists. No, that's not true. How many United Methodists did I just offend? Yes, okay. If they're late for church, that's the one thing they have in common. They want to worship and they don't know where to sit. But here's the problem. Favoritism it instills in us a discrimination, a judgmental kind of core value. And then that comes from, if you go back to the text, we become judges, judgmental, with evil thoughts, end of verse four. And we would love for it to be something else. We'd love for us to say, well, that's just my discerning spirit, or I just like to uh, be able to be more careful. I, I want to you know, I want to be God's conscience, you know, so I'm going to seat people at the right place, right time. No, no, it is evil. It is evil thoughts, and it, we'd like to think it's out there, and James is saying it's not. It's evil thoughts. It's right here. See, it's our problem, not anybody else's. And you've seen, and by the way, I, there are more illustrations for this sermon than you can possibly listen to in a day, because you have been through favoritism issues. And you know those illustrations, and you know, the, you know those stories so well, and they pop in your head all during the message, and they will. And so I almost don't want to illustrate the story at all, because you're, those, circle, those stories are circling. And you know what? There's always going to be a better story, an illustration of the exact same truth that I'm teaching today. But here's what I can tell us about ourselves. We don't like favoritism, we detest it when people play favorites and we're not the favorite, right? We ticks us off. Hurts us, ticks us off, we get angry. But when we play favorites and someone includes us as the favorites, we're a little more patient with it. We coddle it a little more. We say, well, we're gonna stop that maybe tomorrow. But we let the favoritism settle in, right? Don't we? Or we say, well, with all the injustice in the world, it's now my turn. I get this back now. And it's almost a retaliatory kind of justice, which is injustice. And God is saying, no, with all the injustice in the world, you need to make sure you don't play favorites, even when people want to do it with you. If you're a follower in Jesus Christ, it is inconceivable, it's unthinkable that you would ever play favorites and it is your evil thoughts, get that down. And that's the twist. It is inside of us. It's not out there, it's in here. And why is that such a big issue? Verse five, 
Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom? He's promised those whom he loves and who love him, but you've dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Don't you get this? You're playing favorites with the rich. They're the ones who exploit you. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Favoritism, what it does is it has not God chosen. It makes you the judge rather than God being the judge. This, let God be the judge. This is God doing his work, not you doing yours. And from God's perspective, the real issue isn't wealth or status. It's the condition of our own souls. And if God is welcoming people on face value, then we can too. It's okay. So we don't have to be the judge. We can leave that to God. And that keeps us from fostering a critical spirit. Because in the eyes of the world, you see, if you always play that comparison game, you'll always play that comparison game. I'm always better than or worse than. It, and, and you know when you do that, if you're better than someone else and you play the comparison game, you're going to be filled with pride. If you're worse than someone else, you'll be filled with discouragement. So either way, when you play the comparison game, you either live with pride or you struggle with discouragement. So you have to give both of those up and just live unto the Lord. And it, it's really contrary, favoritism is really contrary to the gospel. This, this gospel was, was given to those, in, the scripture says, promised for those who love the Lord. This is for all of us. So I don't have to play favorites. And really, when I play favorites, it dishonors, it dishonors a part of God's family. That's a brother, a sister in the Lord. Why would I want to play favorites with that? Because they are rich in faith. Why would I not value them as a brother, sister in the Lord? And then I, I see that it also creates bad alliances because these are the very people dragging you into court. Why would you want to associate with people who drag you into court? Why would you want to play favorites with someone who causes you pain? Is it because of their money? Is that the power and the influence, does that have more meaning? Is that what attracts you to them? So favoritism all around is just bad business. It's bad for your own soul. It's bad for the people around you. And it's really bad for the church and the, and the community altogether. And again, I tell you this, I, I think that we don't have that issue here nearly like, well, I'll just tell you, I just think we're better than most churches, okay? I'm just telling you, just, just saying bad idea well let me tell you a story because this so is so much not like SBC we can kind of enjoy it and then what I want to do is I thought because you don't need recovery from favoritism what I want us to do is become change agents in the community so I'm going to give you in the last two verses I'll give you the strategy on how we can do that in a culture that plays favorites because we can be a change agent for good for, really for God's glory and for the good of people around us but there's a story of years ago of a, of a lady who came from the wrong side of the tracks. You can interpret that any way you want. She came from the wrong side of the tracks. She went to a very fashionable church, the story says. And fashionable could be to whatever you put in your imagination. But she loved to be at that church. She really enjoyed it. So after attending a number of times, she walked up to the minister at the end of the service and said, I'd like to join this church. What do I need to do? And he looked at her like, I don't think so. So he said, you go home and think about it, lady come back in a week so she went home and thought about it for a week came back says I'm ready to join the church what do I do now okay 
Go home, read your Bible every day this week. At least an hour every day this week. Come back the next week. Okay. So she went home, did that. Comes back the next week, says, okay, I've read my Bible. He said, you're back. He really didn't want her in the church. So he said, um, here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to pray every day about whether you should be a member of this church. Okay, so, but this time she's feeling a little bit agitated. So she goes home, she prays for the week, but she doesn't go back to the church. Doesn't go back. Six months later, the minister sees her in town, says, hey, I haven't seen you in church. What's the deal? Did you do what I told you? She said, yeah, I, I prayed about it. And the Lord told me, don't worry about going to that church. I've been trying to get in there for 20 years myself. So how do you overcome that? How do you overcome the favoritism that's so prevalent in our world? Well, verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay. Speak and act like those who are going to be judged. So let God be the judge. You don't have to be the judge. I don't have to be the judge, which means I'm going to give you three A's to complement to the notes. Okay, you ready? The first one is accept. Accept everybody. I don't have to be the judge. God can be the judge. And if you've ever been to a church that has spiritual snobs, you know that's not very accepting. We've got it. You don't. You can be accepting. Just accept everybody. And you know what? People confuse acceptance with condoning or acceptance with approval. And that's not the same thing. I can accept anybody and any challenge they have in life. does not mean I condone or approve of everything they do. I can still accept them as a brother or sister in the Lord. Okay? So I stop being the judge. I speak and act like those are going to be judged, like I'm going to be judged. And I'm going to be judged based upon this God in heaven who's there to set me free from my own evil, from my own baggage, my own stuff, okay? Uh, accept one another just as Christ accepted you, Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter two talks about not being partial, uh, showing um, about uh, not succumbing to partiality. Ephesians six again, Colossians three again. So you see what I want in, in South Potomac is for a culture that's just so accepting of people regardless of their past, regardless of their achievements, regardless of, of, their, of their life story, they just know this is a safe place. Okay? Acceptance is the key. Number two, when we speak and act like those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, we will show kindness, the kind of kindness that we would like to receive. Okay? This is really key. So not only do we accept people, but we appreciate them. We value them for who they are as part of God's creative handiwork. We do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility we consider others better than ourselves. Philippians uh, chapter 2. So you find something you like about the person, and then you, you find a way to appreciate, to, to mention that, to tell them so. Understand, too, that... You know, everybody in the room is going through something. You know, you ride the, 
you ride the metro home, you're on the train, you look across the way, some guy you think has just finished a day at work, but you don't realize he's just gotten pink slipped or he's being pushed out or his contract's done or he's going home to a house that's chaotic or he's going home but everybody's left the house. And you don't know what they're going through, an illness, a spiritual battle in their own life, their own identity, their midlife, their own orientation. You don't know what's going on inside them. I don't know either. You know what? So I can't make a judgment on that person, but I certainly, as a believer in Jesus Christ, can accept them and I can appreciate them. And then thirdly, let mercy be the core value of your life, not judgment. Okay, this is really huge. Because if, if God treated us according to justice, we would never stand a chance. It's only because of his mercy towards us and his grace towards us. So then we become the merciful, gracious, not just recipients, but the ones who carry that mercy and justice, mercy and grace in the community. We let mercy be a core value. Go back to the passage again. Because mercy, end of verse 13, triumphs over justice. So we affirm people. There's your third A. Affirm people. Give everybody a lift. Encourage one another, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Build each other up. When people stumble, easy to criticize, easy to kick them when they're down. Much harder to sympathize and even harder to help them back up. But don't let them stay down. Be an encourager, not a complainer. Be a helper, not a condemner. Anybody can be a critical person or a judger. Instead, be the encourager. Be the one who helps lift. It is loving your neighbor, verse 8 of chapter 2 of James 2. Loving your neighbor as yourself. And that's found all the way through the scriptures, Old and New Testaments both. Now, you're saying to yourself, you mean you want me to march or chant or write in the paper? Or... No, don't you do any of that kind of stuff. And by the way, I, those are all fine if that's what you want to do, but very little effect to that. <clears throat> you don't need to whine about it or complain about it or even confront it. Here's what I want you to do. When you see favoritism this week, you overcome evil with good. So when someone's cut off in the conversation, you circle back around and say, I think so-and-so has something good to say to contribute to this conversation. When someone else feels cut out, you welcome them back into the circle. When someone feels ignored, you listen to them. When other people do not even recognize or recognize a person as being human, you smile. <clears throat> you greet them as they are human. Why? Because it's, it is incumbent upon us to be accepting of people, to appreciate them as God's uh, creative handiwork and to affirm them. Maybe not for everything that they've ever done, but to affirm them in their identity, particularly in Christ. You know what, we'll do that. We'll change the culture of our community. And I think SPC is poised to do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, the Lord has been good to us. We're gonna thank him now. So let's bow together for prayer. Would you stand with me as we pray? And my prayer is borrowed, and it is, uh, but it's so appropriate for the day. Lord, you have been really good. You have been faithful to all generations, including this one. So thank you. And your steadfast love and your tender mercy has been our salvation. For by your hand we have been fed, and by your spirit we have been led. There's no doubt about it, Lord. We, 
you have been good to us. May we be good to the people around us and not show favoritism. We pray this in the name of Christ, our risen Savior. The church says amen. Amen. amen.